I'm sure we all have this person that we've met in our life that we go, how do they do all of that? How do they understand all of that? How do they make it so easy for me to understand things? How do they compartmentalize all these different trends, all these different data sets? How do they do it? Today's guest, Dan Habib, is one of those people in my life that I look at and go, how does he do it all? I met Dan personally in 2019. I've been following his career for years at MBS Highway and now at Crypto Charge. Dan is a seven-figure trader in the crypto market. He's a former advisor at Morgan Stanley, and he has a wealth of knowledge that I can't even start to scratch the surface on. It's a complete honor to have him on the show today. I cannot wait for you guys to hear some of the forecasts he talks about in the current state of the economy, how we got here and why. And then as he breaks down the crypto market for so many people that are fearful, so many people that don't understand it, or so many people that are completely naysayers about it, and even those of people that have been in it, he does such a great job of getting you to understand the basics of it to where I didn't want the show to stop. I asked for more, we ran out of time. I think he will be back, but till then, enjoy this episode. All right, welcome to the What's Your One More podcast today. I'm joined by Dan Habib. Thank you so much for being on this show today. It's a, it's an honor and a pleasure. And uh, you know, we got a chance to know each other dating back to 2019. And uh, you know, the organizations that uh, you work with right now, I just I can't say enough great things about you. You know, you're a 10 year veteran technical trader. Um, you know, I hear some of the bond advice and some of the technical analysis advice you give, and my mind just is absolutely blown every single time. Um, you know, you are an EVP at MBS Highway, which provides technical market analysis to over 30,000 subscribers, which is just amazing to watch you guys' growth over the last three, four years. It's been awesome. And you're also an EVP at CryptoCharge. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things we were going to talk about today because, you know, a lot of people, I, I wouldn't say I know, can say what I'm about to say here is that you're a seven-figure crypto investor and uh, and a trader and a successful one at that. That's another thing I, I don't really get a lot to say because I'm around a lot of people that think they know crypto or they think they know the market space. And it uh, turns out, well, that's not the case. They just did a real good one time and you have consistently done well. And today, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show to kind of talk to our audience and listeners because, you know, there's a lot of mixed vibes about this. There's a lot of really just people that don't know and maybe afraid. And then there's people that kind of have tiptoed in, had a little bit of success, maybe got burned or maybe took that success and got out. And then there's those that maybe, you know, lifers holding on for dear life, but just don't know what to do. Are they in the right position? Are they, are they waiting for the bounce back? But today, I want to welcome our audience to the crypto space, and I'm so excited to talk about this with you because, you know, you're going to only not bring a crypto advice, but you're going to bring world advice, inflationary advice, what's going on with the markets, why this is, you know, a great investment, maybe even a potential hedge, and, uh, and talk, and I think just really educate all of us on some things that we're unaware of. So again, can't say enough great things. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, this, is, this is so exciting. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks so much, Quentin, and, and I've certainly enjoyed you know, our friendship developing over the last few years. And, you know, it's an honor to be with all of you here today. And there's a lot to talk about, right? There's a lot of things happening in our economy. We have, you know, near 40-year high in inflation. You got the Federal Reserve, who is literally trying to destroy the demand side of the economy and tighten it down. You, know, you have a bear market in the equity markets. You see cryptocurrencies down roughly 70%. So, you know, all of these things are somewhat connected. And what I really want to do, my goal here today is to introduce you to the crypto space, but really take it kind of step by step. I think that it can be a complicated topic, but the goal here is to try to really hold your hand and walk you through this in a way that hopefully you can understand if I do a good job of it and maybe uh, open your eyes to some opportunities that may exist. So I think it's important first to just kind of start with a backdrop of what's happening in the economy right now, because I think some of the issues that we're experiencing really led to the reason why people wanted to create cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, inflation, right, is the definition of that. And this is this is the biggest problem in our economy, but not just the US, it's the biggest global issue that we're having. So the textbook definition is too many dollars chasing too few goods. Well, how'd we get in this situation where we have this 40-year high in inflation? And listen, you guys are all feeling, right? You go to the store, oh, you go to the pump, you know, things are costing more. What inflation truly does is it erodes the purchasing power of the dollars that you have. 
It also kills savers. You know, if you have an 8% inflation rate, it might, if you have $100 in your account today and inflation goes up 8%, it'll still say $100 next year in your savings account there, but it's going to feel like 92 based on what value it actually has. So too many dollars chasing too few goods. How did we get here? Well, a lot of it has to do with the money supply, the amount of dollars and that's out there, the amount of credit that's out there. We're very much a credit economy. And this came from really the government and a mixture of way too easy Federal Reserve policy. So you had trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus that you know very clearly you can see inflated the money supply. But you also had the Federal Reserve who, you know, in my opinion, they're responsible for a lot of this. And you know, many of them not having real world business experience, but many of them being academics. And you know, I know that they certainly have good intentions, but um, they are part of the reason why we see these boom and bust cycles. You know, they oftentimes are looking at data in the rearview mirror to dictate decisions that they're making in the current economy. A lot of the stuff they're looking at operates on a lag, and they oftentimes overcorrect. You know, almost like if you're getting in the shower. And, you know, the water might be coming out cold. So you turn it all the way to hot to try to warm this thing up. And then it does so. But then eventually, a few seconds later, you're burning your skin and you're scolding yourself because you overcorrected. The Fed has been known to do this time and time again. So what's happening here is the Fed is, uh, and, and by the way, the too few goods, that was also due to COVID, where you had supply chains that were decimated and they still are nowhere near where they were pre-pandemic. So too many dollars, too few goods, and prices go high. Dan, can I ask you? Can I ask you? Would one of those goods be housing? Just out of curiosity. Yes. So okay. you know, we've seen all asset prices uh, <laughs> rise, right? Whether it's housing, whether it's you know stocks, uh, you know, we've seen inflation in in really all areas of our economy. Yeah. Now, uh, when we talk about what the Fed is trying to do to curtail this inflation, you know, they have certain tools at their disposal. One of them being the Fed funds rate. Right. And, 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 you know, the Fed, what they were doing prior, part of the reason why they're really responsible is because they kept that Fed funds rate at zero for many years. And what they did is they also did a ton of asset purchases. So they were injecting liquidity into the mortgage markets and they were doing a ton of buying of mortgage bonds, which is where mortgage rates come from, as well as treasuries. And by doing that, they artificially kept interest rates low. And when that happens, what occurs? Well, it promotes borrowing because money is cheap Mm -hmm. and that creates more money in the system. So you saw the money supply in like an 18 month period go up by about 40%. And not only is that not sustainable, but it it leads to inflation. So now the Fed, you know, they were believing that inflation was going to be transitory. They, even though inflation was rising, they continued to keep buying. And now they've done a 180. And now they're talking tough. They're saying how they want to inflict pain. It's going to be pain in the short term. And what they're literally trying to do is destroy the demand side of the economy. They can't do anything with their tools to all of a sudden clear up supply chains. But what they can do is they can raise what's called the Fed funds rate to make things more expensive, to make some types of borrowing more expensive, and then hopefully slow down the economy so inflation can come down and supply chains can catch up. Now, when they hike, there's a lot of misinformation. There. You know, I even see prominent media channels out there saying that the Fed is hiking mortgage rates and they're actually even doing the math. They go 75 basis point hike. This is how much your mortgage payment is going to go up. Oh, Could it be further from the truth, right? There can certainly be indirect impacts, but the Fed is hiking what's called the Fed funds rate. Instead of a long-term rate, like a 30-year fixed rate that you know is in place, has a really long duration, they're hiking an ultra short-term rate. It's actually an overnight rate that banks use to lend to one another. Now, when they raise this, it does have a direct impact on certain things. Your credit cards can go up. Your car loans go up, right? Um, your personal loans, your small business loans, which is a big one. You know, imagine now small business loans. You know, when the Fed funds rate was at zero and now it's at three and a quarter, going to four percent on November second. You know, that is something that is going to deter businesses from expanding and slow down growth. So these are how the Fed is really trying to address this inflation problem. But the problem is here is, is the Fed doing too much too fast? Because when you take a look at history, almost every time the Fed goes through a rate hike cycle where they hike, 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 and this one's one of the most aggressive ones in history, you always get a recession that occurs. Why? Because the Fed slows down the economy too much. 
Now, we're already starting to see some signs of a recession. There's many indicators out there that you can look at, but you know, clearly manufacturing is in a recession already. Mm-hmm. Housing is definitely in an activity recession, and housing activity contributes to 13 to 15% of GDP or so. Um, we'll get to prices. I don't think that we're going to see any kind of housing crash, like some people might lead you to believe out there, but there's certainly softness, and activity is certainly soft. You know, Sales are down you know, pretty big. If you look at applications, you know, purchases are down 42%, refis are down 86%. Uh, but some of the signs that I'm looking at, besides seeing all the manufacturing numbers regionally being negative, shipping looks like it's in a, in a recession. You know, When you take a look at two negative quarters of GDP that we saw in Q1 and Q2, by most people's definitions, we would officially be in a recession, but you know, they have kind of moved the goalposts a little bit. That's the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research. They're the ones that are kind of like the referee here that right. calls a recession. But we've also seen some things, and you may have heard this kind of buzzword before, it's called an inverted yield curve. Now, a normal yield curve, a positive one, which is what you normally would see, is up and to the right. Meaning, if you invest your money for two years, a two-year treasury, versus putting your money for 10 years, you'd expect to be rewarded for putting your money away for a longer period of time. You'd expect the 10-year yield to be higher. But right now, you're seeing the two-year yield more than 40 basis points higher than the 10-year yield. Now, that sounds kind of backwards or upside down or inverted. And if you actually look, the three-month went higher than the 10-year just this past week. So, you know, and by the way, we're gonna, there's a couple potential investment ideas I have for you on that note that I'm personally going to be doing, but Can't this wait. is a sign. What was that? I said, I can't wait to hear this because I got a yeah. feeling it talks about taking advantage of these one-year treasuries right now. Yeah. So, so, so this is something that, you know, when you see this, you're being rewarded and there's more risk uh, potentially in the economy in the short term than the longer term. And when you see these things occur with almost 100% certainty, especially when you see the three-month higher than the 10-year, uh, that's always a sign that you're going to have a recession. So, you know, the backdrop here is this, is that I do think I believe inflation is going to come down. I think it's going to start to come down at the end of the year and really into next year. So while I think that that's going to improve and I think the housing situation is going to improve, I also believe the damage is already done. And Mm. I think we haven't seen the bottom in the markets yet. You know, we're certainly at a bear market, but I think we're going to see another kind of capitulative move, especially as we go into a recession. You know, if you take a look at, if we're not already in one, right, they're always kind of looking in the rear view mirror and classifying a recession after the fact. But uh, I believe that we haven't seen the bottom in stocks, and I don't think we've seen the bottom in crypto. So while that can be painful, you know, if, as long as you don't have an ultra short time horizon, you know, a lot of damage has already been done. So I wouldn't recommend going and just dumping all your stocks now. And there's also, you know, extraneous forces that can impact things. And nobody knows for certain how this is going to shake out, if the Fed's going to pivot, you know, how long and deep this recession will be. But while it's challenging, I think it has a lot, it presents a lot of opportunities because a lot of things are on sale right now. And that's what I'm looking forward to talking about. There's a lot to unpack in all that amazing advice you just gave and market analysts, what's going on. The one thing I want to go back to is, is it fair to say this is the first time that I know that I can recall, but this is the first time some of our Fed has seen global recession, or excuse me, global inflation at the rate of what it is right now? For sure. For sure. And and, you know, and is it fair to say the danger of that is if we go back to the 80s, you know, in the 70s, when the U.S. was rate hiking at the level it was, it, it put the it, it put other countries' monetary system in danger, especially the peso uh, in, in Mexico. And so we're kind of seeing something similar happen in, with the euro right now. We're seeing significant price pressure put on other countries' monetary systems to the point of a lot of people believe that the Fed's going to go until they break something. And then once they break it, they got to call a timeout and, fit and and go back to what we were doing, which might be the easing we were talking about. Yeah. So you bring up some great points there, right? So we are certainly the dollar. A lot of things are denominated in the dollar, right? I mean, we we have a pretty important place in in the global financial world. Um, you know, gases and dollars and stuff. So when you talk about the Fed hiking, you know, obviously we're more concerned with our economic situation in our own country when their Fed's making these decisions, and they're supposed to be autonomous from any kind of political pressures or you know, warnings from uh, the International Monetary Fund that they're going to hurt other countries and such. And you know, recessions you know, oftentimes can be synchronized because mm-hmm. the global economy is so connected. But what happens is this, is that because we're ahead of the pack with our rate hikes, meaning we've been the most aggressive uh, compared to other nations, because of that and because of the safety of U.S. investments, 
you know, you're seeing a lot of foreign participation in our treasuries, especially the short-term treasuries. And you know, it's pretty attractive when you see a yield of four and change percent for a three-month treasury or a six-month treasury. I mean, that's a pretty high annualized rate of return in something that is risk-free, back but essentially risk-free, backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. So think about how this works. You have foreign investors investing in a US bond or treasury. They have to take their money and they have to turn it into dollars, right? So when they do that, this call, if you look at the dollar, it's gone like just straight up, right? So the dollar has been going up, 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 up. And while that is something that is good for imports here, because our dollar is more expensive, more valuable comparatively to other currencies, boy, it makes our exports much, much cheaper. It makes gasoline prices rise much more for them comparatively to us, you know, anything that's denominated in the dollar. And it can certainly have a crippling effect on some of these other countries there. It's also part of the reason why when the Fed hikes and that causes our dollar to move higher, when the Fed hikes, it's not really well received by the risk on markets like equities, because about half of the earnings of the S&P 500 comes from overseas. Well, if now our products are more expensive, that's certainly not going to help with sales. So, you know, all of these things are, are connected to one another here, but I might as well just mention it now. When the Fed hikes November 2nd, which is actually tomorrow uh, yeah. at the time of recording this, so, right. uh, but um, this is something that is going to cause short-term yields to rise with it. I'm actually waiting for that. And then I am going to with some, you know, either some cash that you have, or if you have some tax obligations that you have in an account, instead of, you know, letting them sit there and, you know, not earn too much, um, I would seriously consider investing in a three-month treasury where I think it'll be probably close to 5% once the Fed hikes November 2nd. And that's a pretty attractive rate of return and you're not locking your money up for too long so you can still be quite nimble, you know? And uh, that's something personally that I'm going to do. But, you know, we've we've started to see some of the Fed members and some of the other central banks look like they're starting to really listen to some of the concerns people are having with, mm -hmm. are you doing too much too fast? You know, even Lael Brainerd, our Fed vice chair, she voiced concerns that, hey, sometimes these Fed rate hikes could take six months to really impact and show their true impact on the markets. Maybe we should slow down a little bit to see that and realize that impact before doing too much. And we've started to see other central banks like this as well. Bank of Canada, they just hiked 50 basis points, which was a surprise to the downside instead of 75. The Australian Central Bank, they just hiked 25 instead of 50. The ECB just snuck in at 75. However, they did say we've made substantial progress in removing some of the accommodation that was in the system, which kind of lays the groundwork for what I think is going to be maybe 50 next time. And then how about the U.S.? We know 75 is pretty much a sure thing for this November meeting, but the next one is December 14th. Now, December 14th, initially it was thought they were going to do 75 basis points, especially because inflation, core inflation, which is what the Fed cares about, rose on the CPI from 6.3 to 6.6 in the last report. So going the wrong way. Remember, the Fed wants like 2% core inflation right. or at least substantial progress to it. However, the Fed has a mole and that is Nick Timoros. Nick Timoros writes for the Wall Street Journal and many Fed presidents have had somebody like this where the Fed doesn't want to scare the hell out of the markets. So he pretty much is the mole out there that writes for the Wall Street Journal and kind of prepares the markets for what the Fed's going to do. And if you read what his pieces have been before the Fed meetings, at each of the last meetings, he's pretty much given you the playbook, right? right? So what he said is he thinks they're going to use this November 2nd meeting to try to prepare the markets for 50 basis points in December, meaning the Fed appears to want to potentially take their foot off of the economic brakes that they've been putting on the economy because they're fearful that they're going to send us into a recession. Yeah, and that, that kind of helps the markets price this stuff in, too. And, and that that leads to some of the discussion we're going to have. It, it's not always great. It's very volatile when you have someone that can kind of forecast or is the mole and tells you what's going on. And, you know, the way we get data nowadays is much different than you go back to the early late 70s, early 80s, when the fax machine was the fastest way we were getting data versus now. So to have someone do that, things are getting priced in much quicker, much faster. Uh, the last question I want to ask, unpacking all of that as we dive into this this uh, this crypto channel we're about to go into, the Federal Reserve, every time they do something, it takes time to implement through the system. This is not a super quick thing. I mean, there's some belief it takes up to, at minimum, 90 days to get through the system for to see the other sides of these rate hikes and what's going on. So even today, we may only be seeing the first two rounds of the rate hikes really show up 
in our market space. We still have some more behind us that are coming. 100%. I, I think it could even take longer than that. Um, you know, the markets obviously will try to price it in, right? So once the Fed does an action, does some type of action, you'll see the stock market, the bond market try to price it in. But remember what they're doing and the impact that they're trying to instill, you know, for that to actually work its way through the economy and fully be realized, you know, doesn't happen right away. It could right. take up to six months, in my opinion. So that's why a lot of people have been critical on the Fed, because they don't even know how much they've slowed things down yet because those rate hikes haven't fully been realized. Wow. Quick take before we jump into this. Rates, what do you think they're going to do in the first quarter? I believe they're going to start to see inflation, which is the main driver of mortgage rates, start to come down at the end of the year. And I think you're going to see substantial progress next year. So my prediction on mortgage rates, I think you can get back down to around 5% in the first half of next year, yeah. which I think would be welcome news to people, especially in the mortgage and real estate industries, because you know, activity has certainly been a little bit scary, right? And, you know, having a 7% or above interest rate, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't moving with their 3% rates. And, you know, the one good thing that I do see on that housing front is that it appears to me that builders learned their lesson from 2006 and 2007. So what I mean by that is, is that back then you saw demand that was waning, but builders put up record numbers of homes. There was like 4 million existing homes for sale. Builders just kept building. When you take a look at today, yes, clearly activity has chilled, but you have really, really tight supply, 1.25 million homes, and some of those are under contract. So you look at active listings, 740,000. It's tight. And if you look at the builders, they're not building. Housing starts, which is like breaking ground to create a single family house, down 20% from last year. Housing permits, really the precursor to that housing supply. Mm -hmm down 17.5% for single-family homes from last year. So what this tells me is that, listen, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there in the media. I think you can see some softness month to month. Most people's time horizons aren't three months they're going to live in a home. It's 11 years or so, right? I think you could see some vacillations, but I certainly don't see any type of crash-like conditions like some people would paint the picture in the media. I actually think in a weird way, this could be the opportunity that people were waiting for. You know, if you remember, it wasn't too long ago, there was 30 offers on a home. You had no ability to negotiate. You couldn't even get an appraisal or an inspection. You had to buy it sight unseen. Those things have gone away. You can get seller concessions now. You can get a 2-1 buy down that's paid and re refi next year and use the credit remaining from that probably to pay for the refinance where, where available that if you can do a 2-1 buy down. But, um, but also, you can negotiate here, right? And I think that if you wait because of the inventory picture and because builders learn their lesson, when rates come down to 5% next year, like I'm predicting, you're going to see the frenzy start again. And I think it lays the groundwork for a reacceleration. And you may have missed your opportunity. Because there's a lot of people right now that want to move, but rates are much higher. They're not going to move from their 3% rate to a seven and a quarter rate, right? So uh, that's the way I'm seeing it in the housing market, but certainly could see some vacillations. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you and your uh, you you and your dad have done such a great job of eloquently pointing out one thing that I think gets missed from the, the 0563456789910. The millennials were in their teens at that point. So the population of pool of buyers right now is humongous compared to that point, which speaks to the, you know, the lack of supply that we have is only going to get worse because we've got 89, 90, 91, and 92 birth rates getting ready to come online. And that's going to be a, th those are some of the higher birth rates of the millennials. So to your point, there's a, there's not enough supply looming in the background because maybe the builders have learned from their mistake. They're not doing as much and that that's going to show up and it's going to be essentially maybe not at the pace of 2020, but it's going to feel like 2020 all over again if those rates drop. You know, and for the other person of that side of the coin that I think is hilarious, he goes, well, I'm just going to wait for the prices to drop. I laugh because I'm like, do you think you're the only person that thinks like that? There's like the rest of the half of the world that thinks like that, too. So that's going to be another pool of buyers that come attack, probably hedge funds that come attack that as well. So it's always, always interesting, nonetheless. Well, I really appreciate that, uh, that outlook and update on what's going on in the economy. So let's dive into the crypto space for our audience. Can we just take a minute to define what this is and, and why it came about? What exactly is, I think people hear crypto, they think Bitcoin, but there's so much more to it. Can, can yeah. you kind of there's, fill us in? ridiculous amount of coins out there now okay i mean thousands and thousands and thousands of different coins out there doesn't mean you should invest in all of them many of them you know maybe don't have what i like or what people call utility right no like real like kind of purpose behind it just like there's meme stocks out there that you can make a lot of money on if you're on the right end of it you could also get really hurt with those there's meme coins as well there's some pump and dump schemes out there there's 
you know, obviously, like in any new sector, there's some people that give it a bad name or a black eye, but it really is amazing uh, technology. And I think that it's something that we're seeing be adopted, but the smartest minds in the world are innovating in this space. And I think that this is going to have a profound impact in just the next few years with how we do things, how we verify things, um, you know, how transactions are processed. There's there's so many different venues for how it can be transformative. And I think it's almost going to have an impact just like the internet, which, you know, now you can't imagine life without the internet, right? I mean, you can take away my phone, but if you take away my internet, I can't do anything, you know, but, <laughs> but the internet, you can't even remember time before it almost, right? It's like a basic building block that you need. Well, I think cryptocurrency is going to be transformative in that way. So I like to try to start breaking this down with some of the stuff we actually already talked about, right? So when you take a look at why crypto, in my opinion, was was created, or some of these were created, I think it has to do with how everything in our current financial system is centralized. And by centralized, it means that we really rely on the government and, and we rely on the central bank, the Fed, and they have very important roles that they play, right? I mean, the Fed is really dictating the price of money, essentially, and they are really playing with the money supply out there. They're able to you know, adjust rates or inject liquidity, keep rates low. I mean, we talked about some of the things that the Fed is doing, and they have part of the reason why we're seeing these boom and bust cycles. We're seeing inflation go crazy. And we also rely on banks to facilitate transactions, right? So banks play a very important role in our economy. You know, a cash transaction is pretty easy to understand. You know, you give me the good or service, I give you the cash. It's pretty clean and finite, right? But most of our money is done digitally now, right? Whether it's PayPal, whether it's Venmo, you swipe your debit card. You know, every, it's, very, it's actually very few cash transactions, respectively, to the overall scope of things. Well, how do you how do you keep track of that, right? How do you uh, how do you manage that? How do you make sure you're not double spending the digital dollars that are out there? You know, can I go swipe my debit card ten times real quick and spend more money than I have in my account? So you need somebody to record this, and that's where the banks really come in. The banks help to facilitate the flow of money in our economy. And Wells Fargo, let's use as an example, they keep a ledger for me. I have an account with Wells Fargo. So, you know, behind their security wall, they have a ledger there that keeps track of a direct deposit that comes in from work, my mortgage payment that goes out, you know, it keeps a running tally and it keeps this live number. So you can see in real time if I have the money that I believe I do have in there. And so I can't double spend. So cryptocurrency, in my opinion, was really created to create, I like to think of it, and we're going to talk specifically about Bitcoin here for a minute, but it's like a new monetary system. But it's a monetary system that exists without the need for a central bank, without the need for these banks to facilitate the flow of funds. And it's not too different in that there's still somebody keeping the records, right? And there's still a ledger just like the bank keeps a ledger, right? But it's not done centrally. So I have a couple slides that I think can help to kind of go through some of this stuff. But we want to just take it slow and take it step by step. So you can get your arms around it. So let me just share my screen here. So, you know, there's some other criticisms that come into effect when talking about the government, the Fed. And, and I just want to just clarify, I'm not here to say that one system is right or one system is wrong. You know, clearly our monetary system has been in place for many years and, you know, it certainly has worked, right? But that's not to say that there's not some critiques. So, you know, obviously, we talked about how you know they can create money, our our government and our and our Federal Reserve, right? They can print money, right? They don't use a printing press anymore; it's created digitally. Uh, but these things can cause inflation. They also could change the record, meaning, you know, some companies could be deemed too big to fail. You guys remember the financial crisis? They can change the ledger. They could erase debts and say, "Guess what? You don't know that anymore," right? And the Fed is really the big reason why. You know, we've seen the money supply increase about 40% over an 18-month period, and we saw inflation get up to about 9.1% was the high. It's come down a little bit since, but it's still extremely elevated. So besides you know, banks really helping to facilitate the flow of transfer of money in our system today, you know, there's some problems with banks out there. You've heard about some bad players churning accounts and such, but you know, I think when most people think of our banks, we think about us owning that money, right? And, and we right. kind of think about 
our money being safe in that bank. And yes, it is to an extent. But the problem is, is that do you really own that money when it's at the bank? You know, we've seen some horror stories lately. If you look at Canada, when they had that freedom convoy, people that were supportive of it, Canada froze your bank accounts. Imagine not having access to your money. In Russia, this is going on as well, freezing your bank accounts. But also, when you send money through banks, you know, it does a reasonable job, but it's pretty slow. You know, I mean, if you're on the receiving end of it, card payments could take up to like 48 hours to process. Checks could take 72 hours to clear. ACH, 48 hours. Domestic wires, you know, you can get those done in a day, but international, forget about it. Expensive, takes a long period of time. And you can't really go to the bank. I mean, yes, you can go to the ATM and stuff, but, you know, after five, most banks are closed. Weekends, banks are closed. So do you truly bank yourself would be my question. And the answer is no. Well, with cryptocurrencies, that doesn't exist. And you do, in fact, bank yourself. And you and only you have access to your cryptocurrencies. You can send them to anybody you want in the world at any time for much cheaper and much faster than you can do through traditional means of finance in our centralized world. So these are some pros and cons here that we're going over. An analogy I like to use is the, the internet, which we touched on earlier, right? But you know what Bitcoin is really trying to do is decentralize money, right? Not have these big players being necessary in the system and being reliant on them. And you know, I think a lot of the people in the crypto world feel like decentralization is important because you know, when somebody has too much power, there's always you know potential for manipulation or misuse. And you know, this is something where if we can make monetary system actually work without the need for those things, it could make a lot of sense. Well, information really. It used to largely be centralized. You know, before the internet happened, you know, if you wanted to learn about history, what would you do? You'd go to the library, right? You'd get an encyclopedia. You guys remember those Britannica encyclopedias, right? And you would read history, right? Now, you know, you had a few thousand writers that wrote this, right? So it, it certainly could be written through a certain lens, right? Maybe they could have omitted stuff, but also... There's an old saying, history is written by the victors. So, you know, I'm sure if you read a history book in the U.S. versus some other countries, you might have a different skew on, on the uh, you know history of events there, right? Well, this all changed, and information, I think, became much more decentralized when the Internet came on. And instead of just a few thousand writers, you know, something that would be analogous would be, well, now you have Wikipedia, where you have hundreds of thousands of writers all around the world that are fact-checking each other. I think it's a much better way of really keeping the record straight. You have people to keep you honest and you have a much broader spectrum there. So much like the internet decentralized the flow of information, I think that that's what Bitcoin is trying to do with the flow of money. So how does Bitcoin work? Listen, you can get really in the weeds on this, right? And we're not going to do that today because I don't think that that helps you conceptually to understand how it works. But the Bitcoin system here, the protocol, right, as they call it, I'd like you to just kind of think of it as a new monetary system, right? So you have our current monetary system. We've kind of talked about some of the ways that works, the Fed, banks, their roles. Bitcoin is a new monetary system, but without any of those big players. It's decentralized instead of centralized. And you have complete control of your money within this system. You don't have banks. You actually have your own wallet that you can, if you memorize, you know, 12 words, you can take it offline, and you can take those 12 words anywhere in the world or you can memorize them and then you can have access to your money, right? And you can send your money to anybody you want. Now, when we talk about Bitcoin specifically, you know, this is really like the granddaddy of all the coins. And, you know, Bitcoin, I think, really laid the groundwork for all these other cryptocurrencies and it really proved the proof of concept. And, you know, you might be asking yourself, well, you know, why does Bitcoin have any value, right? I mean, you see a lot of people ask this question, it's made up money. Yeah, I got news for you. The, the the $100 that you have in your pocket is just a piece of paper, right? It, it's There's no intrinsic value there. And it's not even backed anymore by, you know, it used to be essentially like a receipt for depositing gold, okay? So that's kind of how it initially started because gold, it wasn't that divisible, right? It was not you know able to carry large amounts of it. It wasn't really practical, right? So the dollar really used to represent how much gold that you had stored, uh, but now it's fiat money. You know, that fiat money basically means that it has absolutely no value, but it's backed by the full faith and credit of the government. And it's not backed by gold or any kind of precious metals like it used to be. So 
you know, basically the way a currency works is if people believe in it, right? That's the only way that it works. So, you know, and that, no, that might be why you have the, uh, the crypto, you know, uh, space that says cash is trash. Uh, they kind uh-huh. of, they kind of use that term out there for exactly what you just described. Cause it's a fiat. Exactly. So any monetary you know, they used to use furs as currency. They used to use seashells, right? Any, you know, unit of measure that people believe you can give to somebody in exchange for value. Uh, and it's accepted, can be a currency, really, right? So right. I would say that Bitcoin, though, it's much better than other currencies as far as a, from a value perspective, in my opinion, because you also have the network. You also have the technology behind it. And you have the removal of some of these critiques that you could have with other financial systems. Now, Bitcoin specifically, it's also finite, right? So why is gold valuable, right? I mean, yeah, it looks nice, right? But it's because it's a scarce natural resource, right? Meaning, so right? So, so you, there's not an infinite amount of gold, and it's expensive to mine it from the earth. You know, so it's scarce. Well, Bitcoin is probably the most scarce, like solid asset that we've seen. Meaning, there's a fixed number. There's only 21 million Bitcoin that can ever be mined. Now, it's also extremely divisible. You know, you can divide this thing into satoshis. Meaning, like. When you invest in a stock, you have to buy one stock. When you invest in a Bitcoin, you could buy like a, a millionth of a Bitcoin if you wanted to, right? So uh, it's extremely divisible, extremely transportable. It, it checks all the boxes and is better than any of the other currencies as far as the character traits of money. Um, but it's also something that you have to think about from an investment standpoint, right? The most common principle is supply and demand dictates price. Well, if you have an asset that, boy, over 90 three percent or 92 percent or so of bitcoins that can ever be created have been created already and there's only 21 million that can ever be created you have an asset that has a hard end limit there as far as the supply very different from the dollar which we know we can print our way you know uh, into problems right so that aspect of it is very different the other thing is is that all the transactions with you know a lot of the cryptocurrencies like bitcoin are final meaning there's no manipulating the record there's no you know wiping out debts and things of that nature so you might be asking yourself okay i kind of understand this principally a little bit but you're telling me that this is a new monetary system and it works but there's no banks that are keeping track of this how does that happen and this is where the blockchain comes in the blockchain could be a little mystic right but uh, i like to try to simplify things and it's really just a way in the bitcoin's case here of verifying transactions without the need for a central bank or institutions. So just like Wells Fargo has my ledger for me, why do you think about it in the same way, but instead of it being behind a security wall, it's a ledger that is transparent. It's broadcasted through the Bitcoin network and everybody that wants to see it could see it. Now, there's something, and again, we're not going to get too in the woods, woods here, but there's private keys, public keys. Basically, you can remain anonymous on there, but everybody can see the transactions that are occurring. So you don't know who necessarily is making it, but you can see what's occurring. And this kind of sparks the idea or the debate of the illicit activity that could be taking place. Even A lot even of illicit activity happens with cash too, you know? Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. Studies show there's less illicit activity in the blockchain space than there is in the central banking system. Studies right. specifically show that and have been presented to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission as well as to the federal government. Yes. So there's millions of computers that are plugged into the network. And essentially, 
what the computer is doing when it does this is it's really verifying the transactions. Now, you know, there's a question you might ask, which is, well, that sounds great. You got millions of computers that are keeping this record straight and they're kind of acting as the bank would with this ledger, but here with this broadcasted transparent ledger that you can call it. But why would they want to do that, right? Why, why would these computers, why would these people want to use their computing power, right? Consumes energy, you know, nobody wants to do this for free. And the answer is, is that the reward is in the right place. So if you are the first to record the block to the blockchain, you know, a block is essentially like a group of a bunch of transactions that they put into a block, and then you record this to the blockchain. So if you're the first one to do so, you get a reward in actual Bitcoin. And you also get any fees that are tied to the transaction. So there is a monetary reward for doing this work on this ledger that is distributed and transparent that everybody can see. Now, you know, you've you probably heard people talk about hash functions and solving a math problem, and you can get crazy with the explanation of it, but it's not really important for our conversation of just trying to understand this concept. And the is thing that's concept, really- Dan, is this concept called mining? Is that what this, is that what we're talking about right now is mining? It is. So miners, when some, when you hear mining, that means like, you know, it's kind of like referring to like mining gold, right? Getting new supply of gold. And it's like miners are getting new supply of Bitcoin. And the point that I wanted to make is, is that the best thing I like about Bitcoin is that there's nobody out there that's dictating, here's how much money we need to create. There's no central bank. Instead, the supply is a byproduct of keeping the network secure. So the reward that I was speaking to, miners are essentially ledger keepers. That's what a miner is, right? A miner is somebody that has a computer on the Bitcoin network, essentially, or a cluster of computers that is essentially verifying the transactions. But because the byproduct is actually the only way that new supply of Bitcoin comes to the market, that reward that is given to the miner that records the block, it's called mining, right? So uh, this is probably my favorite aspect of it because the supply is is pretty set. You know exactly how this is going to occur. So there is a mathematical equation, right? And there's a hash function that has to be solved. And because they wanted the supply of Bitcoin to be predictable, it's already on a set protocol, can't be changed. But this math problem essentially adjusts. The difficulty of the problem gets either harder or it gets easier depending on the progress that's being made in the network. Meaning they want it so that about every 10 minutes, a new block is mined to the blockchain. So if there's you know not enough happening, the difficulty can ease to kind of get it on average to that. Or if there's too much activity, they can make it harder uh, to slow it down. So the bottom line is this. If you do the math, you know, if there's a block every 10 minutes, that means in one day, there's 144 blocks that get mined on average. And the reward that miners get for writing the block to the blockchain is currently 6.25 Bitcoin. So 6.25 Bitcoin, 144 blocks. That means that right now in the current environment, 900 Bitcoin are created every single day on average. Wow. Pretty predictable. But one of the things we're going to talk about is something called the halving cycle because it didn't always used to be that way. And this is one of the big things that's different than our monetary system. Bitcoin, it's actually an asset where you see inflation getting lower each year as opposed to 40-year high inflation that we're all experiencing today. And you have the Fed stepping in and you know these mad scientists that are tinkering with important things in our economy. So initially, the reward when Bitcoin first you know, came to be was 50 Bitcoins. So instead of the current reward, which is 6.25 Bitcoin, it was 50. So there was a lot more Bitcoin created each day. But then every four years, there's something called a halving cycle. What that means is, is that every four years, that reward basically gets cut in half. So after 50, it went to 25, it went to 12 and a half, and now we're at 6.25 as a reward. So something important to note, because every time before we've seen that occur and after, you see a big run-up in the price of Bitcoin. Why? Well, because half the supply that's going to be coming to market is getting cut. Economics 101, supply and demand here, something that could be potentially exploited. But this is going to keep having and you're going to see inflation with Bitcoin continuing to decrease, which, again, is very different than I think our current financial system here. So one of the things that I really like about, it, you know, but there's other things that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies can be used for. 
And I think that we don't even know what those things are yet, right? So here's an example that I saw out there that I liked where it was like, you know, when steel was invented, right? It gave us like a new material that we could build skyscrapers with and bridges with, right? But when this thing was invented, nobody ever dreamed that you'd be building a space shuttle with it, right? But it's certainly a really important building block in a lot of the things that we do. You know, um, one of the things I like is it says the oldest problem man has is how do I protect my property from being stolen? We make a tribe, a village, a kingdom, a country. If no one can control the ledger, no one can steal my asset. If I want to send it to you, no one can stop it, block it, or prevent it. And this is a lot of the benefits of cryptocurrencies. And with Bitcoin, I truly do believe that we have a new set of building blocks and we don't even know what all the future use cases are going to be. But I think it's one of the best risk adjusted investments. Uh, and I actually believe that right now specifically, you know, is a very good opportunity. And I think that, you know, two years from now, people are going to look back at this time and say, man, I, I wish that I would have bought Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies when they were so discounted. And we'll go through a, a few reasons why. But you know, a lot of people do knock Bitcoin for being volatile. And I know that it's something you and I talked about, Quentin, where it's like, you know, why is it so? Well, it's very volatile because the market cap is relatively small, right? So Apple's market cap is two and a half. Apple itself, the market cap is two and a half times bigger than the total crypto space. Dude. So it's still, you know, adoption is, is still in the early stages here. While that means there's more volatility. It certainly means that there's also probably a great opportunity before you get to the critical mass mass adoption, right? Uh, and clearly, we're in a bear market. Cryptocurrencies, you know, roughly down about seventy percent from the highs that they set in November. So, you know, if you've been invested in the space, it's probably been a little bit difficult, right? And uh, you know, we've seen this historically, where it's not uncommon to see in bear markets crypto lose eighty percent of its value. I don't think that's going to last forever. I do believe that as we get more adoption, as you get more institutional players involved, that the volatility is going to go away, but the returns are also not going to be as significant either. Now, a lot of people worry about regulation. I actually welcome the regulation because they've made it clear that the Fed, SEC, they are not going to ban Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in the US. The big question out there is, is, is this one a security? Is it a commodity? A commodity? And it appears that they are classifying Bitcoin as a commodity. I haven't come out and officially said this, but based on reading between the lines of some of their comments, that's the way it looks like it's going. But the sooner we can get regulation and regulatory clarity, the better. And the reason why I say this is because you see so many companies out there, anecdotally, from, from talking with them, hearing, hearing from them, they have cash that they want to put to work, but they literally can't invest in cryptocurrencies because there is not that regulatory clarity. But once we do have that, just think about the flood of, you know, money that can be coming into the mm -hmm. system and the adoption that can take place there. So yeah. I actually think regulation in 2023, which I think it's possible we get some more clarity, can be a very good thing. Yeah, I think, aren't we supposed to get clarity on that here in November of moving in? Yeah, it's hard to say because they always kick the can down a little bit. You know, we've, I feel like we've been, have, we've been saying they're going to give us regulatory clarity for a while and then it gets delayed here, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah. I also think that once we get a spot ETF, that could be something big as well. You know, and, right now, cryptocurrency is a little tough to buy for somebody that doesn't know how to do it, right? Like, right. you can't and, just... And I, I could see now, based on everything you're saying, why this looks like the gold standard. I hear bit referred to as that all the time, the gold standard of, you know, or, or it's considered to be the gold of the crypto market, because, I mean, it's essentially has the limited commodity, as you mentioned, but also, um, you know, it's it's literally it's literally exchanging a limited supply, just like gold versus, you know, cash, where it has essentially an unlimited supply. Mm-hmm. 100%. Now, you know, we've talked about how the, the smartest minds in the world are innovating in the space. Hard to ignore a, a space like that. But also, it's the best performing asset of the last decade, and it's not even close. Um, and I think it's still early, and there's a lot of opportunity. Now, like I said, it's down about 70% from its all-time high, if we're talking about Bitcoin specifically. Uh, but like I mentioned, I don't believe that the bottom is necessarily in in all these markets. I am a firm believer that we're headed for a recession. Typically, you know, in a recession, we're looking at the equity markets. In a recession with a bear market, you know, the average decline from peak to trough is about 39%. You know, for only 20-something percent, when we're looking at, let's say, the S&P or the Dow or the NASDAQ, right? I think there's still some more room there. And because of the correlation, you know, right now there's, there's a pretty high correlation of cryptocurrencies to risk on assets, meaning 
because of the players involved, a lot of times they're selling the bath with the bath water. And um, I think that, you know, if you see stocks move lower, it is a good chance that's going to pressure cryptocurrencies lower. But I don't think that's going to be that way all the time. You know, cryptocurrencies, uh, one of the reasons everybody was so excited about it is because they thought it was going to be this uncorrelated asset where it could give you like additional alpha in your portfolio, not just like a high beta stock, which is kind of what it's been trading like. I think we're going to see that shift over some time, but I think a lot of it has to do with the supply of it too and who's holding that supply. And, you know, we're starting to see the numbers growing at a pretty crazy rate of people that really have high conviction. And this is some of the insights that on-chain metrics can give you access to. Remember, because everything operates on a blockchain, which is, you know, transparent, everybody can see into this, you can analyze that data, right? If you can measure it, you can analyze it. Well, you can take a look at investor behavior and sentiment and you know what how many coins haven't moved in the last six months you know if you actually look there's like 78 percent of the supply has not moved in bitcoin in the last six months oh, i'm sorry in longer than six for longer than six months so basically what that means is that you have 78 percent of the supply is being held by people that have held through this crazy volatility that we've seen in the market and still haven't sold you know what does that tell you that boy, you're locking up a lot of supply there. There's still enough where price can fluctuate that's still out there and available. But if you have that locked up, it's like throwing gasoline down. And when we get the next bull market, boy, if you have all this supply locked up, you have the new supply of Bitcoin that's going to be cut in half in 2024 when the next halving is, boy, it lays, it lays the groundwork, in my opinion, for a really big escalation. You throw in some you know, good regulatory clarity that we get and, and firms can can invest some of their capital into it. And I think it could be a very exciting situation. Now, I don't ever like to try to advise for people. And by the way, this is something I was talking to you about, Quentin. I wanted to show you. A lot of people knock Bitcoin for being volatile, which it is and can be. But take a look at this. You've probably heard of the VIX. The VIX measures stock market volatility. Well, just to give some of you folks an idea of how crazy the bond market's been in the mortgage market, this is the move index. So this measures bond market volatility, just like the VIX measures stock market volatility. And you can see how it's really gone up, 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 up. It's highest it's been since, you know, back in, in, in 2020 when we saw some of that craziness going on. But if you were to take a correlation of the bond market versus Bitcoin and you looked at Bitcoin volatility versus bond market volatility... Can you believe that the bond market's like eight? It's actually gone up from here. It's like eight or nine times more volatile than Bitcoin in the recent months. I would so, have never guessed that. Yeah, no. pretty, pretty, pretty wild stuff, right? But this is something that uh, we, we kind of went over, but it shows you what the schedule looks like as far as the supply of Bitcoin and how it gets halved, you know, every four years until there's really, you know, no Bitcoin left, in which case you have absolutely no more supply coming. But this is some analysis that I did taking a look at the previous having cycles. And you could see where we talked about initially the reward was 50 Bitcoin. Now, the having that occurred was like November of 2012, where that reward that miners received for doing that work and verifying transactions and writing the block to the blockchain, once the having occurred, it got cut to 25. So the new supply of Bitcoin coming to market every day, essentially getting cut in half, hence the word having. Well, what happened in the market before that in anticipation and after that, after the halving occurred? Well, 400 days prior from the trough to the halving, there was a 637% return. 371 days post the halving, almost a 9,000% return. How about the next halving in 2016, where you saw the reward go from 25 Bitcoin to 12 and a half Bitcoin? Well, the trough was 518 days pre having. And from that point to the having, there was 415% return. After the having, 546 days post, it was a 4,000% return. The next having, which happened in 2020, it's the most current having that we're in, where the reward went from 12 and a half to six and a quarter. 511 days prior to the having, you saw a 345% return. And 539 days post having, there was a 624% return. Now, the next halving will be in 2024, and that reward is going to get cut in half again. Looks like, to me, it's reasonable to believe that you're going to see anticipation of this supply getting cut in half and potentially a nice rally, as well as after the fact, 
seeing a nice rally because that supply has been cut in half. One thing that's clear is the returns are certainly beginning to get slightly diminished, still extremely exciting. But of course, you know, back here in the earlier days, you were going to see, you were seeing 9,000% returns. I think those days are gone, but you can certainly see a few hundred percent return potentially, right? And I think it's still an extremely exciting investment proposition. And I like looking at things that make sense, right? So this is just simple, right? Supply and demand. I'm not talking rocket science here, right? Uh, but you know, if you believe in some of these principles like I do, it might be something that's an exciting opportunity for you and in a way that can help you maybe to you know have a multi-generational, in my opinion, investment opportunity. And you know, one of the best times to invest is when people tell you that you shouldn't, right? <laughs> Meaning, you know, there's a lot of famous investors out there. You want to be a contrarian investor, you want to buy when there's blood in the streets, right? When everybody's ultra optimistic, that's when you should be selling, and vice versa. So you know, everybody's, you know, knocking on the crypto market. It's down 70%. You know, the market looks scary out there. It's difficult to time the bottom of the market. Do I think the bottom's in? Personally, no. Do I think it could go down lower? Do I think it could go down maybe to 14K on Bitcoin? Sure. But am I going to try to wait to time that thing perfect? No, because you might miss the opportunity. Instead, good strategy would be dollar cost average in, right? Yeah. So instead of taking your investable amount of money and just dumping it in one shot, spread it out. You know, just consistently buy. So if price continues to go lower, you are continually dropping your cost basis because it's going to be impossible to time the market. Nobody is consistently successful in doing that. So that's what my advice would be. You know, the investable advice here would be, you know, whatever you're comfortable with, I would look at it as another segment of your portfolio, right? Any good financial advisor, which by the way, I used to be a financial advisor for Morgan Stanley, um, would tell you that you want to diversify, right? You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. You want to have a percentage of your money maybe in stocks and bonds, you know, emerging markets, right? Precious metals, Bitcoin, If you even if you don't like it, I think you should have some exposure because of the potential opportunity that exists. And some of the stuff is pretty simple to understand as to why it looks exciting. You have the adoption, you have potentially the regulatory clarity that's coming. You have the smartest people in the world investing in the space. You have the supply and demand dynamics that are pretty unique to Bitcoin, and it's an extremely scarce asset. You have the kind of the, the utility function of it too, right? Where you know you can do have a monetary system without the need for central institutions. And you know, looking at some of the charts and such, uh, I, I certainly think that I could see this next, you know, next year to 2024, you could see this thing, in my opinion, well over a hundred thousand. So you don't want to you don't want to time the bottom because you might miss the opportunity. And are you going to be that upset if you bought Bitcoin at twenty grand or sixteen grand and now it's at one hundred thirty grand? No, not really, right? No, no, no. So, so that's that's my my opinion on it, there, brother. Well, man, I tell you what, I appreciate. I'm blown away by what you just shared with us for many different reasons. Number one, uh, for our listeners. Do yourself a favor. Do not go online. Do not YouTube Bitcoin. Do not go look this stuff up because the people giving this advice here, they're not they're not doing what Dan does and they're not doing this for a living. Half the time they're not even putting in the orders they tell you they're putting in. Which then brings me to my next question. What platform do you recommend? Uh, I know probably the most popular one's Coinbase, but what do you recommend and why? Because it's not like they can go to TD right now or to Morgan Stanley for that matter, or Charles Schwab, et cetera. They can't go. So where would an audience member go in your professional opinion yeah. to get started? So I would go to Coinbase. Um, okay. You know, there's a lot of other exchanges out there. And listen, I use KuCoin for leverage trading, which is something that's a little bit more on the advanced side and can be you know, extremely speculative, but it also could be a way to hedge your position, right? If you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, maybe it's for tax purposes, maybe it's just, you know, you want to keep adding to your position, but you want to maybe profit on the way down. You can go short with a leverage trade that can cover you to the downside for a lot of your losses. So anyway, not a US-based platform, a little bit more risky there. It's, you know, overseas. I use it for leverage trading because we don't have a corresponding option in the US. Right. But for the majority of your you know, if you're buying Bitcoin, right, you don't want to do it in through like Robinhood, even though they may have just recently changed this or, you know, PayPal or these different options out there, because you're not getting the benefit of owning the coin. There you go. Now, what I mean by that is you're not taking custody of, right? If you buy it through Coinbase, then you can actually take your coins offline. I can put them on my wallet, right? I can send them anywhere I want. 
there's something that we didn't get into today, but maybe another topic, but you can stake the coins, basically provide liquidity with those coins and earn a yield on them. All of these things are not possible if you're buying them through a platform that doesn't really give you custody of the coins. I would always, especially if you're new, I would go with something that's US-based, something that is a public company. Coinbase would be the best one. The only issue is, is that it doesn't have all the coins, right? So you may have to use another platform where there's a specific coin that you're looking for, but it has the majority of the main ones. Yeah, they're adopting them quickly by the by the days here, and I think it's really important of what you just said there because there's a lot of places where you can't take ownership, and 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 what Dan means by that is take the coin off the exchange, put it into a digital wallet, which you will see and have access to. And Coinbase recently opened it up where you can use your own wallet at Coinbase or their wallet, um, and it's a e- very ease of use mobile platform. Very, very, you know, the one thing I learned about crypto that didn't happen in my stock accounts, never happened to any real estate transaction, the amount of identification verification that you have to do to even open up one of these accounts, you know, it's, you don't have to worry about something being stolen because someone's going to have to actually steal your face to do it because they require you to upload your ID, face ID, et cetera. It's very secure. So the idea of it not being secure should be something that no listener should worry about because it's extremely secure. But yeah, listen, the, 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 you know, Coinbase is very secure. You know, it's not that cryptocurrencies aren't secure, but just like, you know, you can have a bank that gets hacked, right? You can have a exchange that potentially gets hacked or a company that can get hacked, right? So, you know, it's not that there's deficiencies within the blockchain per se. It's, you know, a company security potentially, right? So, um, you know, these are things that can potentially happen out there, but you certainly can't have that happen if you take custody of your coins yourself and, and take them offline. Um, but you know, Coinbase is is the go-to one that I would recommend for ease of use, for safety, for starting out. But you do want to, um, you know, you do want to be careful with like wallets and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not something that I would recommend doing without taking your time because, you know, the transactions on the blockchain are irreversible. So if you accidentally send coins from an exchange to a wrong address, they're gone and they're gone forever, right? Right. So it's a good and bad thing, but you just have to be careful. That's all. Right. And then that's great advice. And then the other thing is, what do you say to the people that um, are listening to this and go, you know what? I did the crypto thing. I saw the run-up and I saw the decline. Both times I tried to get online and my account said, you know, server maintenance issues and couldn't get online. And some of the exchanges were not allowing people to get in there. Would you say that's a thing of the past or that was ironic or just an extreme amount of traffic on there that caused those kind of collapses? Yeah. I mean, listen, there's, there's certainly always growing pains with, with exchanges. And, you know, I think that, I I don't know for sure if that's ever going to happen again. Right. But, um, I would like to think that they've made some improvements there when you get heavy points of traffic like that. But you know, if you saw the if you saw the rise and then the fall, I would say, you know, it's probably a learning experience where, you know, a lot of times people ask me, you know, I'm in profit. When should I take profit? Well, you know, if you're asking me, it's probably not a bad time to take some chips off the table, right? <laughs> but but like, you know, you can't get too greedy. You gotta take, you know, it, no it's no shame in, in in walking away with the profit, right? So uh you know, but and and I also want to be prudent in that, you know, you don't necessarily, you know, you don't want to put your life savings in in something like this. That if you need access to the money for something in the near term, yeah, I wouldn't suggest that either. <laughs> so. Right. Well, you know, and that's just that's simple, sound financial advice. We wouldn't put that in the stock market. Wouldn't put it in your four hundred one k. You know, if you need it, you need it. You know, and and moving towards, uh, yeah, I wish we had time to talk about this one. I wish we could talk about Ethereum. I wish we could talk about the benefits of it. Um, I think that's probably the second big dog on the crypto market. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Ethereum 1, and, and well, I guess 2.0, just Ethereum. I would love to venture into the staking and talking about that. Um, I don't know how much time you have, if that's another episode. Yeah, I got, I got, I got something backed up against this Yeah, I saw, here, you, I saw you get fancy there. But, but uh, I would love to re- redo this and and have that conversation because I think our audience, as they kind of dive into this and realize what's going on, that this is a space. And so, guys, I know Dan's got to go. His time is uh, is very precious, man. I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, If you will, guys, tune in. Check out the bottom here for Address to Crypto Charge. Check this out. I mean, it's sound advice, and it's unbelievable. And also check out, uh, you want to promote your YouTube channel here as we're starting to get people to sign up for yeah, that? Yeah, so uh, started a new YouTube channel, uh, a show called The Dan Habib Show, really kind of breaking down 
you know, what's happening in the economy, economic reports, kind of short hit videos to just give you some some insights every week, a couple videos a week. And then if you are interested in learning more about the crypto space, you know, we've really tried to create a platform that I think is unique in that we come from a multifaceted approach in giving you sound advice and giving you an edge in investing. Every day you get a video breaking down the market, technical analysis, on-chain analysis. You know, um, I think that you'll really enjoy it. You can sign up for a two-week trial. If you want to sign up with us today, you know, if you use code Habib, you'll get 40% off. So it's very affordable and, and reasonable. And I think certainly can help uh, if it's a space you're interested in getting involved in. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks for doing that for our listeners. Guys, for more information, go to his YouTube channel, Dan Habib. And then also, guys, for local Jacksonville advice, please check out the podcast at What's Your One More. Guys, again, thank you for your time. Dan, cannot thank you enough. Thanks for being on the show, brother. Thanks so much, man. Take care. Thank you. Take care. I got one more shot, I'm gonna make it One more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah